Over the past year, the police in the UK and abroad have faced scrutiny for their use of force against the public. Events in the US especially have led some to question if policemen should be armed at all. In the UK, the majority of police officers don't carry guns, but a highly trained few do. Today, I'm speaking to someone who knows all about the pressures, the finely balanced life and death decisions which face those officers. Tony Long spent decades in the Metropolitan Police's Elite Firearms Squad, SO19, more recently known as CO19, and his involvement in a number of high-profile shootings has led him to be dubbed the Met's most controversial marksman. In this first of a two-part interview, we discuss the 7-7 bombings in London and the shooting of John Charles de Menezes. I wanted to start with the events of July 2005 and the London bombings because you were in the Met's firearms squad at the time, but you weren't carrying a gun at that moment. That's right. I was I was actually um, not carrying a gun because I'd been involved in a shooting a couple of months previously, and that shooting was under investigation. So while I wasn't suspended, I was not front-facing the public, um, and I wasn't allowed to carry a gun pending the investigation. So I was uh, I was pretty well doing an admin role within the specialist firearms teams. And actually, when the first bombs went off, I was acting as a sort of bag carrier stroke driver for our superintendent up at the G7 conference up in Scotland. There was a huge amount of UK police firearms resources had been sent north of the border in order to protect um, the world leaders that had come to the conference. Of course, it was while that conference was going on, just the day after we'd heard that uh, we'd won the, the next Olympics, that the bombs detonated. Four bomb blasts in a 60-minute period have killed at least 33 people. Three tube stations were targeted, as well as a double-decker bus. Hundreds of people have been injured, 45 seriously hurt. Hospitals across the city have been inundated with casualties. So I had to take my superintendent, drive him on blue lights and two tones, to Glasgow Airport, I think, so that he could get the first flight back to London. And then I had to drive this unmarked top-of-the-range Range Rover on blue lights and two-tones all the way from Glasgow to Tower Bridge. So I'm laying claim to that being one of the longest blue light runs in the history of the Metropolitan Police. How long did that take you? Do you know what? I don't know. Um, I think about it was five hours be too short to Scotland. Probably not, about 120 miles an hour all the way. It was a terrifying day for London, wasn't it? I remember being called into the office from a week off when those bombs went off. Well, it was bizarre because it, up in Scotland, the weather was really good and it was almost like a holiday spirit, really. Everything was going well with the conference. It was quite laid back. You know, we were just pretty well stood to on standby, just enjoying the sunshine and, and just sitting and having a bit of banter. And then everybody's phones started going off. And I remember going to the, the large marquee that was set up as a control room that had big you know, sort of 60-inch flat screens all the way around it, and all the news was breaking about, you know, what was originally thought to be gas explosions, then it became quite apparent quite quickly that it was, in fact, a terrorist attack. And the mood changed from, you know, one of a nice sort of sunny summer day to a, you know, 
what the hell's happening sort of thing. When you got down to London, what was the mood like? Because by then, obviously, several hours after the terror attacks, a picture well, was emerging, was wasn't it? Yeah, it, it was the following day. I had to take the vehicle back to the, spe- the, to, to the owners of the vehicle, the special escort group who were based near Tower Bridge. And then I walked back to our base, which is on the north side of Tower Bridge. And uh, by the time I got there, it was just a hive of activity, really. I don't think anybody really discussed it. I should imagine people were you know, pretty angry about what had happened. But there was just a determination, along with all of the resources of the Met, to uh, play some part in bringing the culprits to justice. But, of course, most of them had died in the actual explosion. So it was the manhunt that never was. You, as we said, weren't carrying a gun at that point. So what was your role in the immediate aftermath of the attacks? So I actually had got sent to the control room at the yard because I wasn't carrying a firearm. Initially, I was sent to the yard to sit at the desk and take phone calls and things. And then my boss said, uh, special forces have arrived. There's nothing for them to do. They're located in a barracks quite close to Scotland Yard. Can you basically be their liaison and make sure that they've got everything that they need, keep them up to speed with what's happening? But more than anything else, keep them out of our hair, because like I said, we've got nothing for them to do. And they were very enthusiastic to get involved. So that's what I kind of did for the first set of explosions after 7-7. It was a fortnight later that there was another attempt, wasn't there, yeah. to cause carnage That's... on the public transport system in London. Four more jihadis. Very similar team, but they clearly got the mix wrong on their uh, TATP homemade explosives. And rather than detonate it, simply created a chemical reaction that got quite hot and sort of melted and sort of bubbled over. And so the jihadis ditched their, their failed bombs and legged it. But of course... You know, there's so much CCTV on the underground system, on the buses, etc., that their images were captured quite quickly. And then it was, you know, a, a race to catch them before they, uh, they escaped. Who is responsible for this? Well, we just don't know yet. But whoever they are, tonight they have many hundreds of police officers and security agents upon their tail. I just wondered what the mood was like with special forces then, who you, you were working closely along, were they getting even more itchy feet to get involved? They were itching to go. I mean, they arrived in London, sort of loaded for bear, and, you know, they, they really wanted to get involved and uh, kill or capture the terrorists, essentially. My job was to basically keep them appraised of, of what was happening. So every hour or so, I'd wander over to Scotland Yard, I'd go up to the control room, find out what the latest news was, you know, if we had any any uh, locations for suspects. And that was really it. And in point of fact, it, it was always going to be a police operation assisted by special forces when there was something that they could bring to the party that we didn't have. So in 2005, we were quite some way into creating our own explosive entry capability. It's called EMOE, Explosive Method of Entry. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it hadn't yet been cleared. And so really, fundamentally, the only thing that the SAS were there for was to act as breaches for us to force entry into any premises that we came across where we needed explosive entry. And so in point of fact, the whole manhunt, for want of a better phrase, they were only deployed twice. One was captured on TV. That was in um, North London, uh, where they blew a door. Two suspects came out onto the balcony. We, We got them to strip down to their underpants and they came out onto the balcony and surrendered to us. 
but that was on one occasion. On the other occasion was in South East London, and uh, they blew the door to another premises that was linked by investigation to the suspects. Mm-hmm. But all that did was set off all the car alarms in the estate, <laughs> mm-hmm. and uh, there was no suspects in there. It was a dry hole. So the the second wave of attacks, mercifully unsuccessful, was on the 21st of July, yeah. 2005. By the following morning, the 22nd, an address of interest to the police was found or located, identified, I should say, in Tulse Hill, South London, and a surveillance That's operation correct. was was obviously put around that address. And you were on the fringes yeah. of that, weren't you? Only insofar as, like I said, I was going into the yard sort of every hour on the hour sort of thing and getting an update. And so the Tulse Hill address was one of many addresses that had been, or say many, you know, quite a few addresses that had been identified around London. Uh, one of the reasons the Tulse Hill address was uh, identified, I understand was because the backpack failed to detonate, the contents of the bag were pretty much intact. And the bomber, rather than um, sterilise himself, as terrorist teams would often do, has left identification in the bag. And one of the things was a, a gym card with a photograph on. So they had that to go on. But there were other addresses around London. At the time, we had six operational specialist firearms teams. And we had one team devoted to the Tulse Hill address and they were stood to at a territorial army centre, an army reservist centre in Tulse Hill, which was a stone's throw from the location. And so they were just stood to there waiting for the intelligence picture to pick up and for the uh, surveillance teams to actually identify someone for them to arrest. And a man did emerge, didn't he, from that address? A man uh, who bore a resemblance it seemed, to one of the wanted bombers, Hussein Osman. We all, we all know a uh, very tragic uh, outcome to all that, but it's, it's important to discuss it because it illustrates the life and death decisions which have to be made by you know, your colleagues or former colleagues in the Metropolitan Police. I mean, I will not forget, because I was reporting, I was Chief Crime Correspondent of the Daily Mail, in July 2005, leading the paper's coverage of those terror attacks. It was a very anxious time, a very twitchy time for, for everyone, be it in the police or be it in the media oh, yeah. or politics, and I, I will never forget that. But obviously mistakes were made, and my conclusion then is actually what, what it is today, really, that the officers who actually pulled the triggers on their guns and killed Jean-Charles de Menezes were probably the least to blame for what went wrong. We, we both seem to share, then, a rather unpopular view because, you know, whenever somebody's shot dead by police, you know, there are always emotions involved. And quite often, as we know, you know, with major events that have, have happened in recent times in London, you know, nothing to do with firearms or anything else, but emotions take over logic. And, uh, you know, people get very passionate about situations and, and don't really listen to it. And the reality was, as you quite rightly said, um, probably the least of fault of anybody. And there was, there was clearly mistakes were made. But out of all of the people that made those mistakes, I don't think the firearms team made any. You know, they were told to go and confront somebody they believed to be a suicide bomber and deal with him in any way that they could. And his actions led them to believe, and the actions of the surveillance officers when my colleagues boarded the train, were such that they absolutely believed that he was one of the bombers and, and believed that he was about to self-detonate. So, you know, actually a huge amount of bravery was shown and it's become a little bit of a, an overused expression now, but, you know, absolutely the case that while ordinary members of the public are quite understandably fleeing 
police officers, whether they be armed or unarmed, are actually running towards the danger. Uh, and in this case, sprinting towards the danger and leaping over barriers to get down to the tube as quickly as they could, because they knew that if the tube left the station with a terrorist in it, it would be out of everybody's control. For those who might not be so familiar with what happened, Jean-Charles de Menezes was a Brazilian man living in London. He was 27 years old when he was shot seven times in the head by two police marksmen, who are known publicly as Charlie 2 and Charlie 12, as they've been given anonymity after the shooting. I know them both very, very well. They're both very close friends to mine for over 10 years before the incident, and they continue to be good friends to this day. And, of course, when you get involved in a shooting situation, as I've already alluded to, part of the investigation process is that you no longer carry a firearm until you, you get some clearance from the mm. investigation team. Mm. And so um, I was already in the sin bin, for want of a better word, and, of course, Charlie 2 and Charlie 12 joined me, and we were both investigated for about six months before we were all cleared to go back on to operational duties. Can you just talk through, in your own words, uh, Tony, what they did? It was unprecedented, wasn't it? So you had a whole team of, of SFOs, so something in the region of 12 guys distributed between unmarked vehicles. Some were playing catch-up with the surveillance team. Others had gone ahead, having read the direction the bus was going on because John Charleston has boarded a bus. He so, got off at Brixton, yeah. walked towards the station, but because of a terrorist scare, ironically, he then ran back to the same bus that he got off of. So surveillance teams that were following him saw that as yet another indication that he was practising what we call counter-surveillance or anti-surveillance. And so that was just another marker, if you like, to indicate that he was, in fact, one of the terrorist group. But when he reboarded that bus, you know, they called out the destination of that bus. They knew that it would go to Stockwell. So some of the teams, I think two of the vehicles, had made their way to Stockwell tube station. So they actually saw the suspect um, crossing the road behind them and entering the station and were waiting for directions on what to do. And of course, that suspect was being followed by the surveillance team. So eventually the command comes up from the control room at the yard that he's not to get on the train. And then, of course, they were playing catch-up because, you know, there'd been a delay. The, the team can't, can't just self-deploy and decide that they're going to confront the terrorist without direction because they only know a small part of the picture. And it's obviously the senior officers at the, in the control room that, have, that should have the big picture uh, and are looking not just at, at tactics but also at strategy. So when they were given the instruction that he was not to, to get on that train under any circumstances, they then legged it out of their cars, abandoning their cars in the street. They ran across the uh, lobby of uh, Stockwell Tube Station, leapt over the barricades, and they, they ran down the escalator. At the bottom of the escalator, one of the surveillance teams was standing, and he directed them onto the correct platform. And they entered to the platform. There were other surveillance officers in, in other tube carriages that were indicating to the team, you know, you need to go this way, you need to go this way, further down the train, he's further down the train. And there was a surveillance officer that directed them onto the correct carriage. I think some of the officers had got on earlier carriages, so they were moving through. But I think there was probably, I'm guessing now, but I'm thinking there was between eight and 12 officers that were part of that packet of team members that made their way down the underground. And of course, while this is happening, they're the guys on the train are shouting for people to leave. So people are starting to leave the train, exit the station. Obviously, like you said, the whole of London was on a knife's edge, so uh, it didn't take much convincing for people to exit the train. Then the, the main part of the team entered 
the carriage and as they entered the carriage one of the surveillance team had sat immediately next to John Charles de Menezes and as the team entered John Charles de Menezes got up out of his seat he's got eye contact with the team as they came on board they were in plain clothes but they would have undoubtedly had weapons drawn at this time and have been probably wearing baseball caps with police written on it so he got up now to this day well we'll never know why it was that he chose to do that but as he got up the surveillance officer next to him immediately bear hugged him put his arms around him to stop him being able to detonate anything you know with huge courage and dragged him down onto the seats and then subsequently to the floor and then at that point the first of the, the officers to fire i'm not sure whether it was charlie 2 or charlie 12 put his weapon in contact with the suspect's head You have to understand that it's a hugely dangerous tactic. Um, there is no guarantee that shooting someone in the brain will hit the part of the brain that is going to send a signal to a thumb to detonate a device. So they're taught to shoot to the head, preferably to the brain stem, because the theory is if that you disrupt the body's computer, the brain, that signal will not get to be transmitted to detonate the bomb. And the best way to do that is to destroy the bomb. So first person to fire put his gun in contact with the suspect's head, fired the shot. But because his gun was in contact with the suspect's head, it created a malfunction, what we call a stoppage. So what he had to do was tap the base of the magazine, wrap the slide to eject the spent case and to feed a new round into the breech. And then he fired several more shots. And as he was doing that, the other officer fired into John Charles Menezes' head. I mean, it was a horrific way to die. That said, I mean, it would have been instantaneous. It would have been very, very quick. But for those people on the train, both police officers and members of the public that witnessed it, it must have been a horrific sight. And of course, extremely sudden to those that were just sitting on the train, reading the newspaper on their way to work. I think that they must have been policemen ran in. There was just lots of shooting and then a man the man near the door in our carriage was just pushed to the ground and shot and we were all just running madly trying to get off the, off the train and up the escalators. So then we heard the shootings and everybody started to, to scream and, and run and we, we, don't know, we did not know what happened, what was happening so we, we just followed the, the stream and we um, rushed out you know, uh, because we did not know whether there's going to be a bombing or anything. Was there a shoot-to-kill policy at the time? I remember a lot of debate about that. There is no shoot-to-kill policy. Let's ignore suicide bombers for a moment and talk about just an ordinary armed robber or a, a domestic incident where a man's got a firearm and he confronts the police or whatever. We are taught to shoot to stop. What we mean by that is if it's possible to arrest somebody, you know, by simply grabbing hold of them, or using a baton, or using CS, or using a taser, then we're required to do that. We use conventional methods first and foremost. So the only time that you can use a firearm is when all other you know, avenues have either been exhausted or are unlikely to succeed if tried. 
So you would only shoot someone when there was absolutely no way of dealing with it by conventional methods. There's, there was no, there was no less lethal option available to you. And you have to stop that person immediately because either they're going to kill you or they're going to kill someone else. Now, in order to do that, for the most part, we shoot for the torso. The reason we shoot for the torso is because it is the biggest target and it gives you the most likely chance of stopping somebody. If you shoot for the extremities, it couldn't have been that dangerous that you had to shoot them immediately. Do you see what I'm saying? If you shot someone in the leg, for instance, that's not going to stop them shooting back at you. So the very fact that you fire your lethal firearm, whether it be your handgun or your carbine or shotgun, whatever it might be, means that the need to stop them is absolutely paramount and immediate. But your aim is not to kill them. It's merely to stop them. With John Charles de Menezes, obviously, it was a suspected suicide bomber situation where he had to be killed. That yeah. was the decision your colleagues had to make at that moment. Yes, you're almost, you are, you're almost certainly going to kill him. But let's say, for argument's sake, you fired a single shot at his head. And unbeknownst to you, your shot had ricocheted off his skull and had rendered him unconscious and his hands fell to the side and they were empty. Then you would have stopped him, even though you hadn't killed him you'd prevented the bomb from detonating. So even though, and I know it sounds like a play on words, even though you deliberately shoot the person multiple times in the head, your your aim isn't to kill them. Your aim is simply to stop them from doing what it is that they're doing. Because what they're doing, those consequences are so dangerous that it justifies that level of force. When they carried out that shooting, when they killed Jean-Charles Domenizes, they thought, didn't they, that they'd done a good day's work? I don't know whether it came out in evidence at any point, but the team... Having shot John Charles de Menezes, they immediately went to making sure that everyone was off the train and ushering people out of the station. And as soon as they were on their own, they went to a neighbouring platform and they were literally like hugging each other because they couldn't believe that they were still alive. You know, the, the, the degree of emotion was such that they believed absolutely that they'd stopped a, a terrorist from detonating a bomb. I think I'm right in saying that by the time they left the scene, they were already aware that he didn't actually have a bomb on him because I think one of the first people called to scene was what we call an expo, which is an explosive officer who's a former military guy, a civilian, but who works full-time for the Met Police as a bomb technician. He arrived, uh, searched the body and said, no, no, there's no device on the suspect. But even then, they believed, because they'd been told that this was the, the suspect involved in failed attempt to detonate a bomb, you know, the day before or several days before. Can I ask you, Tony, without revealing any identifying details, in general terms, Charlie 2 and Charlie 12, what sort of colleagues were they? How would you describe them as they they were were then? They were pretty typical guys. I mean, they were, you know, we're all specialist firearms officers, which is the the highest standard of firearms authorisation in the Met. I mean, now the course is something about 20 weeks long. It was shorter then, but it was still a very intense, very difficult course to pass. Very few people passed that course. Out of 30,000 officers in the Met, there was only, at the time, something in the region of 40 specialist firearms officers. So they were the elite of the Met Police's firearms capability. At the time... I think we were training about 2,000 authorised firearms officers out of the 30,000. And out of those 2,000 firearms officers, only 40 uh, were trained to conduct the sort of tactics uh, and the sort of operation that they go out on. And so, you know, you don't get through that system, you know, without being a good egg, (laughs) 
for want of a better word. And both of those officers, 100% reliable, steady, you know, married guys with children. The guy that fired the first shot had been a specialist firearms officer since 1991, to my certain knowledge. I suspect the other officer had been a firearms officer from around about 1998, I'm guessing. And so, you know, both were ex very experienced specialist firearms officers. You know, to, get, to, to put it into perspective, those 40 guys were conducting something in the region, but between their six teams were, were conducting something in the region of, of um, about 800 operations, armed operations a year. And all those operations were intelligence-led operations, either working for the anti-terrorist branch, uh, special branch, um, flying squad, uh, the regional crime squads and, and, and people of that nature. Um, so they were always working on intelligence-led operations against organised crime groups or against terrorists uh, or against lesser armed suspects. And in an average year, well, most years, we probably didn't fire any shots at all. If we did, it was probably like in one incident, perhaps two incidents out of 800 operations a year. So, you know, very steady guys working in teams of very steady guys. I recall, because I, I wrote about it extensively at the time, there were differing accounts of how quickly the Met's high command had it confirmed that an innocent man had been shot dead. It ranges from a few hours. I've heard that from people who I would regard as very reliable sources to people who claim it wasn't to the following day. What's your memory of that? Right, so I was embedded with 22 Special Air Service Regiment, as, as I said. And it was one of my jobs was to keep them and their intelligence cell up to speed with what was happening. So when I went to bed, well, the last time I went to see the control room, the night of the shooting, everyone was buzzing because they thought we had, you know, taken out one of the terrorists. When I got up in the morning, I can't remember exactly what time of the morning was, but it was in the morning. I went over to Scotland Yard. I got the lift up to, I think, what was the 13th floor which was where the, um, the control room was based. And I walked towards the control room. And in the corridor outside were two of my inspectors from the specialist firearms teams, looking quite gloomy, having a conversation outside the uh, room. And I quite cheerfully went up to them and went, all right, guys, you know, everything good? And they went, no, it's not good at all. And I said, what? And they went, the guy that was shot yesterday, he wasn't the right guy. So if there were senior officers or anyone that was aware that John Charles Nenez was a total innocent the day of the shooting. It certainly wasn't something that was known generally in the control room. And the control room was the hub where all of that information was coming into. And I said to the two governors, I said, do the teams know yet? And they went, no. So rightly or wrongly, I went straight downstairs. In fact, I didn't go in the control room. After I spoke to them, I turned around, went straight back to the lift. I went downstairs and I stood underneath the revolving sign outside the, the old Scotland Yard and I called up the team leader for the team that had actually done the interdiction the day before. And he answered the phone quite cheerfully. I said, all right, mate, how's things going? I said, mate, you don't know, do you? And he went, what? I said, you need to know this, mate. You're going to get told officially, but... You need to know now, the guy that you shot yesterday down the tube is a total innocent. He's, he was not the suspect that we believed he was. 
It was at five o'clock this evening that Scotland Yard issued a statement saying that they now believe they know the identity of the man shot dead yesterday morning at Stockwell Tube. The statement said that Scotland Yard was now satisfied that he was not connected with the terror incidents on Thursday. The Metropolitan Police said for somebody to lose their life in such circumstances is a tragedy and one that they regret. I imagine you've had contact with Charlie 2 and Charlie 12 since then. What was their reaction to that? I can't imagine how bad they felt on hearing that news. So I stayed with the Special Forces team for the duration of the manhunt, uh, which lasted probably a week or so or yeah. thereabouts, certainly yeah. four or five days. Yeah. Um, and so I didn't actually go back to our operational base until you know a week or so after the shooting. And I can't remember when I next saw Charlie 2 and Charlie 12. It would have been... It would have been a, a week or so after that because, of course, they were also suspended. And, you know, I, I, how, do you, you know how do you start a conversation with somebody that knows that they've just shot and killed a total innocent? You've been listening to a Mail Plus true crime podcast with me, Stephen Wright. I'll be back next week with the second part of my interview with former Met marksman Tony Long. My name was splashed all over the newspapers as being involved in that shooting. Prosecutors say that Anthony Long opened fire so soon after pulling up here that he can't have taken the time to observe what was happening inside the other car. You know, it's not like in the movies where the music changes and the camera zooms in onto the bad guy's eyes. It, it doesn't work like that. Today, the court was told that he fired a total of eight shots in 2.1 seconds. You said that police forces treat police marksmen like bastard sons and daughters. We're shaking hands by this point, and she said, Ah, oh, Tony, the Met's very own serial killer.